Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Are You a Robot? This is a series where we explore some of the most critical issues around AI ethics and related technologies. We're doing that by getting some of the best and brightest minds in the field, the cream of the crop, we could say, and we are having conversations with them to try and figure out what is the standard policy, what are some best practices that we need to keep in mind when it comes to governance of machine learning and AI. To have these best practices, to create this conversation around some of these topics, we've made a Slack channel that I encourage you to jump into. I'll leave a link below. If you are not in there already, I would really, really love to see you and hear your voice in there so we can chat and we can continue this conversation around these ethical issues and some of the most important questions of our time as AI starts to become more and more prevalent in our daily lives. Last but not least, I got to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Ethics Grade. They are incredible. Thank you so much for making this happen. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have these high caliber guests on and we just wouldn't be able to continue. So if anyone wants to know what they are up to, they are an ESG benchmarking firm that specializes in technology governance. It aligns up so perfectly with what we're trying to accomplish here. It's like a match made in heaven. Check out the link below if you want to discover more and see what they are doing. Now let's talk about our guest today. Dan Jeffries is one of a kind, a futurist, an author, blockchain enthusiast, and also he does a bit of thinking and pondering and writing on AI ethics. We've been pretty close over the last couple of months because I also work with him in the machine learning operations space. And one thing that is very clear from the get-go when you start to talk with him is that he looks at these problems from a million different angles and he has a vision for how things are going to play out. He really prides himself on being ahead of the curve. He was one of the first people talking about Bitcoin when it came out. He writes continuously about what we talk about today in these AI red teams and going into ethical issues and security around AI. So without further ado, let's talk with Dan Jeffries. Are you a robot? Dan Jeffries, thank you for coming on the Are You a Robot podcast. This is a pleasure. I know that you are a futurist, AI block AI enthusiast, blockchain enthusiast. I really wanted to speak with you today about AI ethics. I think that there's a lot we're going to be able to dive into. But before we go into anything, I want to give a little bit of background for the people that are out there listening. You are the chief technology evangelist at Pachyderm, a machine learning operations company. You're also, also the author, engineer, uh, futurist, as we mentioned. You have spent more than two decades in the IT consulting space, and you were an open source pioneer at Red Hat. When I speak to you, it's obvious that you have the open source mentality in your blood. <laughs> so that is something that I enjoy talking to you about. We have also seen that you had a little bit of success on the internet. You've been able to make quite a name for yourself in this personal branding with your breakout AI tutorial series called Learning AI If You Suck at Math. <laughs> Dan Jeffries, thank you for being on here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. I'm not sure I could have done it better myself. Uh, oh, so no really problem. I've, uh, <laughs> I've been working on it. I've been trying to make sure to hype up the participants and the guests as they come on. <laughs> so today, I really want to talk to you about AI ethics and where we are right now, what things we feel could be better, some announcements that we've heard from big names, why that isn't necessarily the best thing, and what you feel is the right path forward within AI and ethics. Uh, let's just start by, can you give us some information on 
how you got into this space and what you've been doing in it? So it's a space I was thinking about for a long time. Uh, in particular, what I saw was a big gap between these kind of ethics principles that I saw coming out from big companies and what I think ethics looks like in the real world. So I have the Practical AI Ethics Alliance. I've done some work with think tanks on the subject and some some big companies. I think the big difference is that most of what I see in ethics space is a company comes together, uh, they form an ethics committee, usually of people who don't have any uh, ethics philosophical background or uh, any machine learning training or anything involved. It's just kind of the people who were most interested in, in joining the this committee. And then they get together, they sing Kumbaya, and they put out a series of platitudes. Uh, and they're like, cool, we're done. And the problem with it is those platitudes usually are kind of weaselly in some ways, right? They just allow people to kind of go in either direction. Like, we'll keep this private unless we can't or don't want to, you know. And if you read these things closely, it's just designed to give these groups a ton of wiggle room um, and only really to take a stand on the most obvious ones. Like maybe we won't quit weapons technology or we won't commit genocide. Great. Like congratulations on, you know, taking a stance that's broadly supported by 99.9% of the population. So for me, that's, that's not enough. And I think really in the practical world, uh, artificial intelligence is going to make all kinds of decisions that are much more nuanced. And you need to have a system in place for dealing with those things, both at an engineering level and a public relations level. And uh, you do need sort of an ethics watchdog committee, but they need to be highly trained. And they need to be versed in these issues. I think it's both a business issue and a technological issue. So if you look at these things closely, most people haven't designed any of the infrastructure that they need to do it. They're just doing it on the fly. Um, you know, when Microsoft's Tay experiment comes out, right, and suddenly becomes, uh, you know, kind of exposed to the internet and turns into you know, a racist monster within 24 hours, right? They, that was they didn't expect it, right? Because they've never seen attacks on logic systems before. These are very different from the types of adversarial attacks that we see on traditional software, right? Where you could have bugs or race condition or buffer overflow. You could have a perfectly secure data set, a perfectly secure model, put it out into the real world. And it's a tech surface is it's logic. And so when you see something like uh, Facebook building their AI red team, a, a topic I've written a bunch about are, are, uh, AI red teams, they were, they formed that team in the last year, uh, not long after I started writing about it. And it was, because they were getting adversarial attacks on their nudity filters in Instagram. So people were putting tiny imperceptible dots into the pictures to defeat the filters, the machine learning filters. And there was nothing wrong. There was no race condition or bug within the neural net. It was a, which there can't be, right? There was just an attack on the logic. And so they had to build this team and they kept trying to say, okay, cool. Now we can check this dot pattern but then they would change the dot pattern. So they actually had to create two neural networks, one that could basically scrub any kind of hidden dot patterns from the image and then feed it back to another neural network that could look at the cleaned up image and then make a decision about whether the nudity filter had been violated. So I think people are going to face all kinds of real things and then they're going to have to make real, real decisions about ethics and they're going to have to take a real stand in a way that they've been able to kind of sweep under the rug in the past with nice sounding policies mm -hmm. that come out, um, you know, typically from maybe a human resources team or an executive team, you could put together a nice document that says, you know, we're in favor of, uh, you know, diversity or we're in favor of this particular ethical standard. Uh, but the fact is most of the time you can really kind of sweep that under the rug at, at the corporate level, whereas algorithms are going to force people to make a real choice uh, and they're going to have to learn how to deal with these things and take a, an effective stand. Yeah, and it's much more accountability that they're going to have to be held to, right? So how do you feel we can do this in the proper way? Like, how can we prevent these things from happening? Or is it only retroactively after we've let 
these algorithms loose into the world and then we realize, oh, we've created a monster. Let's dial it back. How can we kind of put some governance on that before that problem happens? So the way, there's two things. One is you do need a, a, like an overarching committee that's going to set the standards and build a program internally. Second of all, it is second team that's a, a public relations team that is either it could be public relations for internal groups or just uh, or it could be public relations for external groups. And those they need to be trained in the way that artificial intelligence makes decisions and the way that it uh, does things. So a good example, you don't want to be building this team on the fly trying to figure this thing out. The next, the last thing you need is an AI red team, is, or what I'm calling an AI red team, which is a team of data scientists, machine learning operations folks, regular coders, interdisciplinary thinkers, who are there to bring an older concept back, right? The unit test, for instance, and uh, being able to build... Uh, a particular test for certain types of anomalies as they come up. So that group is basically going to be in charge of triaging the problem in the short term and then building a long-term solution and building automated tests to deal with these anomalies. So a couple of examples. Lyft, for instance, when they were working on their self-driving car and their virtual simulations, found that there is a whole it's a small subset of cars and jurisdictions in the world that have, like I think, a yellow left-hand turn signal instead of a green one. And the cars just were like, I don't know what to do with this. And so they had to bring in artists to paint through all of these things and paint yellow turn signals in order to retrain the AI on that particular thing. Or they just found that the cars were randomly jamming on the brakes in the middle of traffic, right, uh, when they uh, faced some kind of strange condition. And so they had to learn, you know, why is it doing this and create a, a, a specific test for that. So the big companies who are building complex projects are already starting to work on this. Another example is something like Google's uh, infamous um, um, disaster with Google Photos labeling people of color as, as gorillas. And they didn't have a team in place really to look at this. And they, one of the engineers heard about it on Twitter and was like, oh, my God, you know, we've got to fix this now. And so what they did is basically they, they made it so that the algorithm couldn't label anything as, as a gorilla. And they got a lot of they got a lot of blowback for this, basically saying you didn't really fix the problem. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is, but but it is a band aid. But it, to me, it's also what an an AI red team. At least the first step of what they have to do is triage the problem. In other words, it's like when you come to the hospital, you're bleeding out. The the triage nurse has to say, okay, look, this is a gunshot wound. This is this person's got you know um, an upset stomach. Right? These are two different things. Here's the sorting. We have to deal with these problems first. We have to create a quick solution. This person needs to go to the doctor right away. This person needs a, a bandage. So it is actually an effective triage solution. What they need to do after that, though, is either is start to go back and look at the data set, for instance, or look at the algorithm itself. You know, do they need an expanded data set? Do they need to uh, buy an expanded data set? Do they need to uh, go out and expand their current data set? Do they need to build a GAN? Uh, to generate additional um, synthetic images that they can work with. Um, do they need, you know, there's a whole bunch of different approaches. Do they need a, a, a rule-based system that can overlay with it and, and offer solutions? Of course, these types of solutions are expensive, right? And, um, and not every product, if you're building an app for, um, you know, for you know, reading pictures on the internet or something like that, you may not have the, the bandwidth to do this, but if you're building a fraud detection algorithm, if you're building something that deals with life and death, if you're dealing with something that deals with money, if you're dealing with something, whether somebody goes to jail or not, whether you're dealing with whether somebody gets a loan or doesn't, whether somebody gets into school, you're going to have to effectively be able to deal with these things. And you're going to need the teams in place ahead of time. You cannot be cobbling this together, this team, like on the fly when you feel like it and you realize there's a, already a massive billion-dollar public relations disaster or your self-driving car, you know, in the notorious case of Uber's self-driving car in, in Arizona hit and killed a woman in the middle of the night, and you go back and you look at all the reports on it, and there are just a number of things in there. Obviously, accidents are going to happen. Number one, anybody who thinks that they're going to build a self-driving car, for instance, that's perfect and never kills anyone, we, we, that's an order of magnitude better. First of all, perfection doesn't exist, but it's also an order of magnitude better than humans, which kill 1.2 million people on the road every year and injure 50 million more. Right. So it's, it's, if you get the self-driving cars down to a quarter of that, 
it is a massive increase in uh, in safety and uh, and benefit to society, right? So mistakes are always going to happen. But when you look back at some of the, when you do a diagnosis, and there were extensive diagnoses of what happened in the Uber self-driving car, they had, they used to have two safety drivers, and then they, you know, cut cost and removed it to just one. So the person had to look at the dash, look down, look at the dash, look down, look at the dash, look down, right? Um, the cars had um, several neural nets that were sort of untested, kind of working in an imperfect way. So it had a uh, an LSTM, our long-term, uh, long, short-term memory network, which is starting to fall out of favor in machine learning, but was the only effective way we really had to deal with time series data. Um, so it's like, okay, this is happening. And so they were using an LSTM to predict object paths, right? So it spots an object with an image detection system. That's a tree or whatever. The problem is if it detected an object and it, was, it didn't know what it was, it just labeled it as unknown and it didn't track the object. So be, and that makes sense at some logic because you're like you don't want every plastic thing that's floating cup that's floating around as an object that's being tracked yeah, as potentially yeah. dangerous. But the but another problem was even more severe, right? And that was the every time um, an object was it changed its label. So the woman, as they were approaching her, it saw uh, her as an unknown object, then a bike, then a person, a bike, unknown object. Every time it changed the classification as it was doing this, um, it would start over the pass to the LSTM, and it would start tracking the trajectory data from scratch. So all that historical trajectory data of that, that object that was unknown by human is now lost. And so the, the, the algorithm that's essentially looking at it and saying, hey, maybe I should slow down or swerve to avoid hitting this is now starting from a later time step again and again and again to the point that when it gets there, it finally signals the human when it's essentially too late to make a decision. She actually makes a tremendous, like, qu quick decision when you look at the actual response time. But, of course, that uh, still hit the, the poor woman and she passed. So um, these are just the types of things where ethically t teams are going to have to go back and really look at all these types of things and make um, better decisions, build unit tests, build the teams that already have these things in place, go back and be able to retro, just like when the highway safety comes out and looks at what happened, these teams are going to have to go back and look at what happened when these things happen and really, uh, you know, do a better job. And that's an extreme example because we're talking about life and death, but it also matters when people don't get into school or they don't go or they don't get a job or they, or they're, or they're rated by your artificial intelligence for where they work. For instance, all these types of things provoke tremendous amount of ethics issues and, and teams are going to have to be really good at dealing with them in the, in the, the yeah, next Yeah, I want to talk years. a little bit more about the actual makeup of a team. You kind, you mentioned like machine learning engineers, data scientists, some software engineers. Uh, what else do you see being a factor in those teams? Because there's essentially two teams that you're speaking about, right? So what does this first team, what kind of makeup is in that team and then what does the other team look like yeah i think so i think the pr team is relatively easy to build in, in many respects um you just need people with a, a decent amount of technical depth and, and a passion for artificial intelligence understanding of it at least uh, a willingness to uh, talk about technical issues and translate them into real world language for people for instance the pr team if you had a, a pr team in place during the uh, the google photos problem uh, you know, sometimes when, if, if people don't understand artificial intelligence, they may think that's a rogue engineer who deliberately programmed the algorithm, right, to to label people of color as a gorilla. And so you need that team in place to say, hey, this isn't how the algorithms work. We understand that this is horrifying and we're incredibly sorry about this, And but this is not intentional. We are going to fix this right now. We are on it. And here's how these things work. It doesn't make it uh, better, but we want you to understand how this works. So I think you really need to have a team that is able to understand the logic, the decision-making is trained in it, probably with a couple of courses, um, and then is able to kind of explain and translate those things to the real world and listen to people, right? And it, you would also need that group internally as well. For instance, even if it's not a public-facing thing, let's say you have an algorithm that is in charge of hiring, or maybe you have an algorithm uh, that offers a component to your performance review at work, right? And let's say somebody gets passed over for a review. Who's reviewing that? Who's uh, how do you how do you get access to that? Who 
Um, how does uh, you know a worker who's never been exposed to artificial intelligence, you know, how do you how does that team kind of help explain you know what it's doing? And and can are they working with algorithms first of all that um, are explainable or that have characteristics that are they're not just inventing uh, the truth? So that's that's the second thing. There's actually a, the third group I would say is. Would, and I would change it from an ethics committee to more of an architectural committee. This is a committee that is in charge of kind of setting the standards for internally developed systems and for sourcing third-party things, right? So if a third, you buy it from a third party and it's just a closed black box, do, can you really say that its decision-making is effective? And in fact, these teams are generally going to face legal requirements in the, in the future, and, and both from the government and, and also – um, you know, state level jurisdictions, and they're going to have to be able to come up with a better answer than well, the algorithm told me so. And when you look back historically, sometimes these companies would sell something, and it's the equivalent of a snake oil, right? They're saying that they're using fairness and transparency, or their or their their algorithm is you know the state of the art. But the question is, is it really? And when you look back at something like uh, the gal who wrote the the amazing book uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, and shows the examples of uh, schools that had brought in these algorithms to rate teachers. And, uh, you know, when one of the teachers got essentially laid off uh, because of it and uh, she sued and they peeled open the black box. And when they plotted where it was categorizing people, you'd expect kind of this bell curve distribution and what it looked like was white noise. Like the ratings were just kind of all over the map. It is totally, it was basically utter nonsense. And, and um, there was another teacher who basically had gotten like a 96% score, had changed absolutely nothing about what he did in terms of his teaching style, the books that he, that he used, the textbooks, the, the class style, and, and got like a, a ridiculously low score the, the next year. You are not going – so this architectural team has got to be there to set a standard and say, cool, we need this level of for, you know, data lineage, for instance, something that kind of Packinger specializes in so you can go back and look at the data set. Oh, wait. There was an anomaly that crept in in our resume um, rating, saying, "Oops, because we got these, bro- you know, these broken resumes or these resumes that were too much in this category." Or um, you've got to have, you know, that version control so you can roll forward and back. You've got to have some level of model serving framework, like a, you know, like a Selden or something to be able to kind of sunset in one version and try another one. You've you've also got to have some level of explainability, right? So more and more, that's going to become important where you interrogate the algorithm. Um, of course, it, explainability even itself can offer a, some, a sense of false confidence too. Well, the explainer told me also it was good, but meanwhile, so you tend to believe the explainer and sometimes they've shown um, in, in tests of people who've tested explainer frameworks that if you, they manipulate the results in such a way for the explainer to be explaining nonsense, sometimes even data scientists and smart you know, IT folks will go, oh yeah, well, the explainer said it, it's good. So there's, there's even ways to kind of trip that up. But you do want to hold these, count, these companies kind of accountable, make sure they actually are building something that is, um, you know, is uh, fitting with the architecture that you've laid out um, and that they ha- actually have, if they tell you they have differential privacy or they have an explainer network or they are using a transparent fairness. You have to go evaluate them. So they have to build a criteria to do that. The last, so, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say ahead. the, I was going to say the last group really is the, the final component of, yeah, having the, where the real rubber meets the road is, and they have to translate these issues to folks in ways that when you go to the AI red team, they have to be people say who can do something practical with this. Okay. So, it, there some problems they have to know how to they have to have the most important characteristic of the AI red team is critical thinking right? they have to be able to question and they have to be able to think clearly about a problem in a broad scope because you can do a hacky solution or you could do a real solution to things so if you're trying to you know the classic example i always use is if you're trying to um, measure people's happiness there's a lot of really first answer hacky ways to do that you can go well we have a facial recognition algorithm that's measuring how often people smile that's but then you end up with this black mirror thing or smiling all the time but they're not really they're not really happy it's not a real measure of happiness and so you could measure the wrong things or you could put in a system that's the you know the wrong thing to to fix this and so i think these the folks really are going to have to be an interdisciplinary team they're going to need like for instance you might need legal people for instance so if you say cool we need to go buy a new data set to expand our data set you need to have people who can source that data set, for instance. 
And you need to make sure that then if you want to get access to that data set, okay, cool, we need to get access to it, but we um, are not ready to buy it yet, but we want to know whether it's actually going to fix the problem that we're having with this with this algorithm. And so we need it for, you know, five weeks to train. And uh, we, you know, the legal framework would have to be, for instance, in place, say, cool, we're not actually going to release the algorithm trained on your data until we've officially paid for it and proven that it works. If we prove that it works, then we purchase it, et cetera. So there's a legal framework. There's, uh, there's just, you would also need operations people, for instance, you need, if you decide you're going to go expand a framework where let's say you need to go get new pictures of stop signs on the street. Well, then you're going to have to have people with a camera going out there to do that. You're going to need people to project manage them. And then you're also going to need the engineers in place who can say, okay, cool. Do we need a second algorithm? Do we need to, um, you know, add an overlay framework to this? Do we, is there a way to fix this problem in the, in the current limitations of machine learning as we know it? If so, and if not, do we then add a human in the loop to it to deal with this when this anomaly comes up through just straight logging? Okay, the decisions are being logged. We're looking at them over time and we're going to say, okay, cool, we're going to override the machine in these instances, right? So they're going to have to be very highly focused on what the, the, the limitations are because there are a tremendous amount of limitations in the current amount. So I think these are really advanced uh, teams in a lot of ways and um, they'll start with a small group of folks over time. But I think these types of teams, even if they end up calling them something else, will dramatically expand over the next 10 to, 10 to 20 years in our lifetime. Dan, sounds expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> and so how can you like You know what's more expensive when your car hits and kills someone uh, or your fraud detection algorithm starts um, flagging everyone on vacation uh, as uh, you know as committing fraud or mm. um, or you get sued by a class action suit for of 10,000 students who didn't get into your university. Right. So in the long run, I think companies, yes, it is expensive. And in the long run, companies are going to have to look at it in the same way that they look at compliance or that they look at um, a security team. Right. Uh, you need to have a security team that's in there. Um, what's more, you know, if, if you have a security team at Visa, for instance, um, doing internal phishing, for instance, to try to teach people, hey, I, I did the phishing and now you need to have a neat little education system because you gave me your password over the phone to somebody you didn't know. You want to be able to do that ahead of time before they get a call from somebody externally and open up the keys to the Visa network. So um, these teams are just going to, they're going to be expensive, there's no question, um, but they're going to be a necessary, uh, a, a necessity in any group that's doing machine learning intelligence scale. And uh, machine learning artificial intelligence is going to seep into every uh, possible application uh, in the well, world. Well, do you feel it's going years. to be something that is only available for these tech giants and then for the, imagine a fintech, a smaller fintech that's just trying to get off the ground right now, I don't see them realistically implementing all this, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're just trying to prove out their business model in the beginning. How do you weigh those two options? Is it something that you wouldn't expect for someone until they're at a certain maturity? Or should this be right from the get-go, they need to be architecting it so that they don't have these problems. Like you said, it's much more expensive if later on you realize that your algorithm is a complete disaster. So, so I think any large-scale team needs to think about it right now, period. Um, even if they're building at, the, at a bootstrap level with a couple of folks uh, and, uh, and that their charter is to then build out what it looks like as the team expands, I think any large-scale R&D team or company that's significantly doing artificial intelligence that needs to have it. I think what we will see in the coming years, you're right, it's going to be too expensive for a, a tiny you know, couple-person startup to, to pull off. What we will eventually see, though, is open-source frameworks projects, uh, that start to actually implement some of these ideas in, in ways that are easier for people to grab, just as in the way that we see now identity frameworks, for instance. It used to be every team had to roll their own identity framework and be masters of security, and the results were predictably terrible. Right? Um, every website you know, shared a gigantic vulnerability. Now, you do create a dependency when you have uh, you know, an infrastructure uh, for identity that everyone uses. If there's a big bug, then it affects millions of sites. But again, you want the security experts working on that and rolling it out. You would rather outsource it and accept a few major bugs from time to time versus 
your team being totally inexperienced and not being able to deal with it. So I do think that ethical frameworks and frameworks for dealing with some of these things will start to come out and that will be another component of applications that are developed over the next over the next decade. Um, and I also think that you'll see in the interim, you'll see teams that are kind of dedicated to consulting on this, right? You'll see teams that um, either uh, outsource to do science teams and uh, machine learning folks and the people who can help them build a program. And then when they have the program, it'll be easier to roll it out to different people by tweaking it with different questions. Uh, one of the ways I appreciated it with companies was to have a series of interviews where I posed a series of difficult challenges in the same question five or six different ways to trip people up and get them to kind of show the conflicts in their own in their own thinking about it because humans are masters at, at uh, believing totally incompatible stuff in the same head, right? They're like, oh, no, no, I, I, I'm this, these are totally uh, compatible beliefs and they're really not. Um, so, but in that way, I was basically able to highlight instances where they hadn't fully thought through and say, hey, you're going to have to make a decision. It won't be the perfect one, but you're going to have to make this decision choose it, defend it in court, defend it to employees, to defend it to everyone else. Um, and so you better have thought about it very clearly. Do you remember what were some of those thought experiments that you were doing? Well, so one of them was a perfect one example was with, uh, with hiring or, or, or uh, resume scanning. And um, so the first kind of goal of deciding who would come in, and one of the questions was really, um, uh, you know, if you have to make a choice, a binary choice of, of favoring uh, the most qualified candidate for the job or favoring um, you know, a diversity initiative or uh, would you, you know, which direction would you choose? And people, some people would try to kind of weasel out of it and go, well, you know, if you do have a diversity it, it, uh, initiative, it automatically, um, you know, equals the, uh, the, you know, the ideal candidates for the job and, 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 but that's not really an answer too. That's a, that's a sneaky answer. Right. And, and obviously it's not totally, it's not totally binary, right? In other words, like uh, there's, um, and, and I want to make it clear for folks that that's not the case, but it is one thing where some people would just say, sure, well, of course, well, we want the best candidates for the, for the, for the job, duh. And, and I was like, yeah, but that's, you realize that that's an ethical stance that you took and you, you've said it in such a way that you assume everyone else would agree with you because I would find just as many folks who say, no, no, we actually really do need a force, a workforce that's completely diverse. That actually is an incredible strength. We need to make sure that we have, people who have different kinds of thinking that that builds a more resilient team. And that's important. The interesting thing is that in, in, again, in the real world, in, in the world where we live in today, where you can basically craft a diversity program internally with a lot of fanfare and a, a committee and a nice document that looks really good. You really don't necessarily have to adhere to it. Right. Um, and in companies, go, oh, no, no, we definitely do. But the fact is, maybe they don't. Maybe a particular employee compromises it or maybe it gives too much wiggle room within there to allow it. And the fact is, companies are going to continue in many ways to, to hire. And even you saw this as something like Salesforce, where they thought that there was a um, where the the uh, president thought for sure they'd close the gap between, you know, men and women in terms of their pay. And when um, a group of, uh, of uh, powerful sort of intelligent gals came to him and said, hey, there actually is a thing. Here's a bunch of evidence. It's still here. He was shocked. He was like, no, I thought we dealt with this, right? And so they had to go back and really look at all the data and try to build a program to deal with it. In the same way, um, if you're going to take the, if you change an algorithm, the algorithm is much, is going to do what you tell it to do. Okay, number one, the, we were always worried in like science fiction about the you know, the AI is gaining sentience and, and making their own decisions. I'm actually much more worried about narrow AI that does exactly what we tell them to do, <laughs> right? And, and, and reflects human ethics, which, and humans need no, no help being jerks, right? Like humans are, uh, in some cases, the, you know, the most pernicious species that's ever walked the planet, right? And capable of great horrors and great wonderments and great, you know, benevolence too, but everything in between. So AIs don't need any help. Uh, being evil, um, so humans can do that just for them, and the narrow AIs will follow exactly what they say. And then, and in the case of the algorithms, since it it does precisely what you tell it, if you optimize the algorithm for screening out um, sensitive characteristics, it's going to give you a different set of resumes. And if you say, okay, I'm only interested in where the person went to school and what they did and how much experience they have, and how many years, and these other nebulous characteristics, 
that's going to give you a different set of results. Um, um, and if you have an initiative that says, look, you know, we really want to have more you know, women in STEM, for instance, and, and it's a super important thing to us, that's, and you, you optimize it to look in that direction, it's going to give you another set of results. And so I was very clear, and I'm very clear with companies that you really have to decide how important these things are to you because the algorithm will do exactly what you tell it to do. And, uh, and you have to also be prepared to say, this is where we stand on it. We're doing as much as possible in this area here, here, and here, but we've made this decision. And there's not, people love to think that there's a universal answer to these questions. And what you're going to find is, of course, it really is relative to each organization, right? There are big kind of broad things we can agree on, like, you know, genocide is bad, right? But there's a lot of, <laughs> although historically, there's been a number of folks who, uh, who you know, uh, it didn't always agree. agree, right? Yeah. So, um, so even that has, you know, like a, a relativism to it, which is horrifying to think of. But, um, but in general, the broad population would agree on these sort of things. But when you start to get down to smaller issues, um, it becomes much more challenging. And each company is going to have to make an organization have to make their own decisions on where they stand. And they have to be really, really, really clear on it in a way that they have never been in the past, because the algorithm will lean in one direction. You have to say, this is where we stand. We're prepared to you know, die on this hill. And uh, this is the way that we think that it should be done. This is where, what we believe. Um, and we're going to stand by it. And we're going to set the algorithms to work in that way. So this is a nice segue into the idea that we spoke about before we started recording on how Google has announced that they put together an AI ethics team, right? And you had a little bit of beef with that. Can we go into that right now? I, I have a little bit of beef with it because I, I feel um, I feel if you look closely at their external um, ethics principles, they fall into that platitudes category and they fall, if you really read them closely and being a, an author and a language person, if you really look at the individual principles closely, it, it basically says that they're going to try really hard to do this or that, but that if there's a business case or, or a reason that they can't or whatever, then they won't. And to me, that's not really taking a stand on anything. It's like they, they, um, they kind of said, look, we're really going to respect privacy, kind of accepting yes, we can't, right? Or those types of things. So to me, that's more of a marketing campaign. And, and that, by the way, companies I worked with, I, I crafted the internal internal structural rules for folks and uh and i also crafted the external marketing ones because um those are ones where it's just a, a fact that you're going to um you know want to have some level of publicity you're going to want to put it out there that like we generally stand in this direction and you want to give yourself some level of, of wiggle room but that's not really a if they're i i don't know what their internal process looks like in terms of how they would approach this and so I don't want to bash them in any way, right? In other words, they may have a very they they actually have done a tremendous amount of work on tracking the algorithms over time and logging their decisions. They have a huge paper um, where they have sort of thirty six different, I think forty eight, a huge amount of points um, that kind of shows like how you track a machine learning model and its lineage and its understanding over time and its decisions and. Um, and so they do actually have a, a, a group of folks who are thinking about it from a practical standpoint. Um, but I so and, and so I don't have access to their understanding. But if if they're going to base the ethics on on just essentially designing, you know, a, a platitude platform of ten you know ten things to put on your website so that that basically nobody can disagree with, like yeah, we want to be transparent and fair. Um, it's like very few people are gonna be like, what, you know, you can't, <laughs> that's outrageous. Right. So to me, that's not really making strong decisions in algorithms. There are real issues that need to be dealt with. And I think unless people are thinking about it in the practical way that I am, or they're, um, or they're really building the systems to do the logging and they're asking the hard questions of companies of where they stand, which I think is where most people are standing there are failing. They're thinking, oh, well, we're just going to you know, implement a couple of logging decisions or we're going to, we're going to, let's say you're doing resumes, you can go, cool, we're just going to screen out the characteristics that are sensitive and we're good to go, right? Except you're not, right? It's, there's a whole series of algorithms that have been developed in that particular segment over time, many of which are not very effective and some of which are. So you, um, you could have something like a counterfactual fairness in there. Counterfactual fairness will take this, 
take your kind of sensitive characteristics and invert them and in a parallel universe, do you get the same score for the fitness of your resume if, uh, if Demetrios uh, is a woman or if Demetrios is a person of color or if Demetrios is from a particular geography or an economic background or whatever it is, do you get the same score or not? That's an effective way for instance, to deal with it. And so there are certain algorithms, but it's not enough to just drop them in. You have to have a full understanding of what it is you're trying to achieve. You have to have gone in and asked people the questions of where they stand and make sure that management and the groups under, you know, make those decisions. You have to have people that can implement these policies in actual code, right? And not just, um, and it's not the same thing as we see in the kind of MIT self-driving experiment, which is a more of a human moral code than it is like how the algorithms work, where they're like, cool, you're, the car is driving and it has to kill, uh, it, it's made a fatal mistake. Does it kill the school children bus or the old person or the homeless person? And it, it, so that's a famous experiment that they have on the MIT, but it's more, but that's more of a human morality because we don't program the machines like that, right? We don't, we, we don't program explicit rules. It's like, okay, in the event that you, um, you know, if, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, school children, old person, then uh, old person, right? It, do, it doesn't work that way. And so it's more you're going to need people who are skilled in, in, in building systems that would affect the logic internally and, and nudge it in a way that you would want it to go without being able to build exclusive rules. So I felt that um, – I felt skeptical when I saw the announcement uh, more, than, uh, more than anything else based on the things that I've seen externally. But again, I don't have access to the team and they may have a really robust team inside. So I, I would withhold judgment until I would actually kind of see what the program looks like. But uh, I, I maintain a healthy skepticism over it. Well, one thing that I'm trying to play out in my head as like AI and machine learning becomes more and more intertwined with our daily lives and in the genetics of companies, do you feel that there's going to be some kind of what you spoke about, this code that they're going to all be putting out? And the main question that I have is how much transparency do you feel is necessary in that code or this like, hey, this is where we stand with respect to our AI program? So I, I think um, I'll take a semi-controversial stance on this and that I do think that there's a public-facing kind of way to do this. And I do think that there's an internal process that needs to be a little more closely guarded. Um, I think that sometimes when you, you need to know where you stand clearly, you need to have effective policies, you need to be able to defend it. But at the same time, I also am not of the mindset that everyone should publish um, the interworkings of every single algorithm that they're using and, and the inner workings of every single ethical stance that they take. Because the thing is, in the modern world, we've got this sort of social media mob mentality at times that just swarms on, you have sort of interest groups that swarm on different uh, groups that just don't agree with them and try to nudge them in a specific direction. And you're always going to find people who disagree with a particular stance that, that you took um, it doesn't mean that there should be no accountability. There absolutely has to be. And, and naturally, um, nation states and, and uh, companies as a whole are going to set broad policies of things that are just unacceptable, right? And people are going to have to fall within those guidelines. But I, but I do think it can actually be counterproductive, almost in the way that um, when I think about my, like my writing, for instance, I'm... And as a young writer, I was open to feedback immediately. Like as soon as I did my first terrible draft of something like get everyone's opinion. Problem is that was always actually detrimental to the writing because uh, most people are not able to say, take a pile of crap, which is what a, a first draft is and see what I was trying to do and where it could go and be gentle. Right. So, you know, some people are just focused on grammar and word choice and whatever. And they attack all of that and destroy your ability to have any sort of passion about the draft. And then suddenly you're depressed about it. And so I had to learn over time that like certain uh, that I would, uh, develop drafts at different points and then show them for feedback. And then there were different people that I could show that feedback to, to gather that feedback. So my, you know, my longtime editor can look at anything and give me big picture feedback instead of focusing on grammar and word choice and a few characters that are off base. 
Um, and, and then at different levels, I have other folks who could look at it more closely right up to the person who is super polished and is just going to nitpick on every single typo. And the problem is if you kind of expose this to the wider world, you get everyone. Um, so I think it's actually much more important for companies to craft a comprehensive internal policy and system to deal with these things effectively, um, that they personally stand behind, that they have, that they teach to people internally, um, and that they work with continually and that they iterate on and update as they face feedback from challenges or from people internally, right? If you build again, something like a performance review system in an AI, to me, uh, where, where AI currently stands, something like that would be a disaster. I just don't feel you'd really need to survey, surveil people across the board in your company, uh, which is an ethics problem in itself. You'd need the algorithm really doesn't have any sense of, uh, wouldn't, I, I can't see an algorithm at this point personally that would have any real sense of whether a person was capable. You could track how many things they get done or whatever, but certain professions you know, it's not about the number of tasks they check off on a box. It's, they have one or two things they must deliver, and, and that's more important, right? The, the salesperson who lands five mega deals in the year that are worth $30 million, uh, is it, is it, do you then track, uh, you know, how many calls that person made in a day? Um, is, is that an effective measure? And I, I think there's just going to be, algorithms are going to be really challenging at this point. So there's, and so you're going to have, if people choose to implement something like that, you're going to need to have deal with the feedback and you're going to iterate and have to decide whether this is a good practice or not in, uh, internally. And I think um, that's going to be a challenge for every company in the next 20 years. Yeah, this idea of the external facing model that you're giving people your stance, but you're not giving them everything. And then the internal model that is comprehensive. And what you said that I found fascinating is training people on this. And I'd like to dive into that idea a bit more on the training. Is it going to be something where you feel there's like these days with security training, we mentioned it before with people fishing and um, trying to catch someone doing something that's not totally secure. Do you feel like there's third parties that are going to come in and read this internal statement and say, okay, we're going to then train for this? Or is it going to be something that a company is going to set up their own tutorials that everyone has to watch when they're onboarding. Like, how does that play out? Yeah, I mean, I hope. I mean, I hope it doesn't just turn into kind of the, the typical um, financial ethics you know, nonsense that they do yeah. every year in a giant yeah. corp, where you like click through the same thing every year. Like, cool, I know what insider trading is. Thanks very much. Right. That's. Um, I hope it's not that. Right. What I'm what I'm thinking of is much more comprehensive of. I, and I don't think of just as a, a statement of policy. I also think it is a series of programs to, to check things, right? Maybe you, maybe you design, maybe if your algorithm is doing again resume um, um, screening, then maybe you design a human in the loop test that you have to test, where you have a set of resumes that you've decided are, you know, really qualified, another set that that aren't, and you have humans have a set of checklists to go through in a. And, and basically design, like, here's how I'd rate this, here's how I'd rate that. You train the humans on how they, what your standard of these kind of rating these things are. They go through and do it. And then you compare the human result to what the algorithm would say about those same things. And you continually do that over time. And, and you have to count for, is there a 20% differential? 30%? Is it 5 and what's acceptable? How often does it vary when different humans do it? And you'll have to iterate on the standard. So I think I think companies are going to have to design these standards. I think we'll end up with best practices along some of these standards for human-in-the-loop interactions particularly. I do think that there will be third parties that specialize in this and that come in and help 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 design these systems for folks. Um, and I think that um, I think that there will be kind of overlay systems that are that are useful for this. Uh, but I do hope it's more than just a, a lip service thing. And you would certainly, and if you build a standard in for um, again, resume screening, for instance, and you say that, um, okay, we're going to, when push comes to shove, we are going to favor diversity. And even if that means we lose out on, you know, in a, in a, in a pool of a thousand candidates that are super qualified and we lose out on five, um, that, uh, would have been absolutely just rock solid additions, uh, you know, rock star additions to the team where we accept that we're going to lose on that. 
and um, and we're perfectly fine with it. And uh, and so they would need to be understand that decision making process, how it works, how to defend it, how to talk to other people, how to train the other uh, internal HR folks on that, uh, and then also training within the human in the loop processes and what the documents mean, uh, those kinds of things. That's where I kind of see the training, where it's sort of a legacy that gets passed down. And it's a living document, a living set of procedures that changes over time as the algorithms advance. There's this like idea I have in my head that I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to properly articulate, but I want to give it a shot because for me, as you're talking about this, the ethics, as we mentioned, there are some pieces of ethics that we can all agree upon. You know, it's black and white. But then there's a lot of the the majority I would say is not so clear cut and so how a business decides which side of the line they want to stand on really I feel like it's almost going to be well it's going to have gigantic business implications like you said mm-hmm. what is better for the business is it these rock stars that are all going to be the same gender or race or whatever but you have them or is it going to be a diverse team and I look at it a little bit like, so these are, these are business implications, but you're superpowering or supercharging it with the way that you're defining your ethics um, manifesto within the community or within your company, right? And so there's not really, there's not really a question there, but I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this idea of which ethics are the ones that we're navigating and how that will play out for businesses? <laughs> Everything. I mean, the, the challenge is it's, it's going to play out in ways both negative and positive, right? And it's going to be, there's a, a societal level sorting algorithm, if you will, about where, you know, which businesses are successful and many of them will be successful based on, uh, on the choices that they make internally, right? But the, the ethics of, what these things make is um, infinitely challenging. A good example is the compass algorithm in Florida for deciding whether somebody um, is likely to be a recidivist or whether they should get bail. And it it offers a score to the judge. Um, And uh, they, a lot of work has been done in trying to peel back the algorithm and how it makes decisions. And, and um, in many ways, it just externalizes what judges are already doing anyway, which is kind of like um, you either lean on the side of false positives or false negatives. And we have that term in machine learning, for instance, right, where you have a false positive, it means that, you know, it, it was incorrectly identified something um, as, as this is it, like if it's a, you know, a... Um, tomato detecting app it incorrectly detects it as yes this is a tomato but it's a banana and uh you know false negatives when uh there's a tomato sitting next to you know a basketball and it says no that's 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 a basketball so that's a false negative it missed the tomato in false positive and false negatives in the real world have real implications a false positive for someone going to jail or not meaning this person is unlikely to be a recidivist um, and uh, shouldn't you know uh, go to jail, or this person was put in jail for an extended period of time when they probably shouldn't have been. Right? These these types of these are real world false positives and negatives. And so the algorithm basically has to lay on the side of I'm going to put more people in jail, or I'm going to let more potential criminals go free. And this is a, like a classic ethical dilemma in all uh, jurisdiction systems and horrific authoritarian systems. They just you know default to. Uh, Everyone goes to jail and we don't care whether anyone's innocent in uh, sort of sophisticated, ethical, highly advanced democracies. Um, you have, uh, you tend to fall on the side of letting more people go free rather than locking up a single uh, innocent person or, or minimizing the amount of innocent people who ever get locked up because that's a travesty. And in, you have everything in between as you have corrupt democracies or democracies that are falling apart or plutocracies or kleptocracies, right? Um, and, but the algorithm is going to take a stance on this now too. And you have, you have ethics on that standpoint of where, where does it fall? Is it going to put more people in jail or less? Um, you, in many ways, ironically, could probably make it more fair if you were able to take into account 
characteristics such as income level and other characteristics. Of course, you can't legally do that. And so you have to basically make it generalized for the entire population, um, you know, so that a person who, you know, comes from, a, you know, a wealthy background and is committing a white collar crime is basically classified in the same way as somebody who came from a, a um, you know, a disadvantaged background and uh, robbed a liquor store, right? Um, so these two things are um, both the algorithms rating everyone the same way because they legally have to, and in some ways, we may end up having to adjust law to say, um, you may have to take these characteristics and maybe there's a different rating for two, two, two different segments of people. And then, of course, that becomes a political landmine and you get uh, those types of things will be politicized and they're going to push the algorithms in, in five different directions either because you can or you can't do this depending on which side of the political spectrum you are or whether you're in the middle. And so there's going to be just these huge challenges across the board. And the algorithms, frankly, are going to reflect all the imperfections uh, of our current society um, and probably human society for all time. Uh, these, these are not, these are not easy questions for anyone. And even if you have some noble oracle who's all wise, you still have to deal with everyone else in society um, who wishes to say, no, we want a zero tolerance policy, put as many people in jail as possible, we don't care. And, and maybe they get influence over the designers of that algorithm and push it in that direction. Right, uh, vice versa. So I think these things are going to be um, across the board. Again, sentencing algorithms, hiring and firing, performance reviews, who gets into uh, college or school, um, who gets a loan, who doesn't, um, where police should be deployed, where they shouldn't. Um, uh, you know, recognizing people on online and lumping them into this or that. There are just a billion little microethical issues uh, that are going to come out and uh, the artificial intelligence is going to be the battleground of this uh, probably probably till the day that I die yeah well also going back to from a corporate standpoint you speak about these different teams do you feel like there should be on the board of advisors some kind of AI advisor who is helping them navigate these ethics or some the ethics advisor needs to know about a bit of this artificial intelligence and what it's capable of machine learning, like algorithms, they need to have that background and more than just your typical ethics questions, or should there be a little bit of both? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I, I would see eventually at some point someone in charge, you know, a C, a C suite executive in charge of uh, algorithmic ethics within an organization. And I see various you know, groups being a part of it too. Um, they're going to have to be trained in how the decision, how machines make decisions, which is different than human beings. It just is. Yeah. It's not, um, it's, we, we like to infuse our uh, AI machine learning with, uh, with human characteristics. It goes back and, I guess I can be guilty as a sci-fi author of doing the same thing we, uh, where we, where we want to create a personality or the, the, the imitation of a personality, but the fact is it just makes decisions very different way. AlphaGo doesn't care uh, whether it beats uh, Lisa Dahl. It's not passionate about. Um, it's not celebrating. Afterwards. Yeah, it, it, it didn't sacrifice its life to learn Go <laughs> versus like its social life and and uh, and like after school activities to train, you know, from the time it was five. Right. So, um, and it doesn't have any other desires and it can't do anything else. Right. It's just a, it is, uh, and it plays in a very different way too. Um, and then you come along with alpha zero, which learns kind of completely without any human desiring behind it and learns its own way to play. And maybe that actually ends up mirroring more how humans make decisions in terms of, you know, moves being more intuitive or, or um, aggressive or defensive in the way that, that humans were. Um, but again, it's still not a human being and it's, it doesn't make decisions in the same way. Uh, and we're going to have to really, you're going to need a person who really understands how these, how these decisions are made and what they mean and, and be able to effectively put limitations on them, safeguards and advise uh, people uh, how to proceed in, in terms of deploying this because they're going to get deployed everywhere. And it's going to become uh, just part of the standard operating procedure uh, in the DNA of every company and organization on earth. It's, it's still at the nation state and a big tech level in many ways, but it won't be long before it diffuses down even to the 
individual level, right? I mean, you look at um, the, the big tech deploys and nation states deploy facial recognition and you have an algorithm like Fox uh, released out of a university research project that allows you to put obscure, um, you know, to obscure your images in the way that Facebook was trying to deal with their nudity filters, but this is to help defeat identity filters. And you'll see this at the individual level, right? Where maybe in the future, people have a plug-in to whatever you know, the future Instagram looks like, where they're automatically running all their pictures through it because they don't want the algorithm advertising at them or or doing things like that. So you're really going to even diffuse it down to the individual level. Um, and from that point, society starts to look like a cyberpunk novel to me in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, I know you're a futurist and I know you have a lot of thoughts on where we're going as society. There was something I was just watching last night on wearables and this idea of where we're going with AR and how do you feel AI ethics play out when we're wearing glasses and there is a company that is basically maybe feeding us algorithms or giving us what we we want how does that not become another echo chamber like Facebook mm. I mean, I, well, I think it does become an echo chamber, but I, I also think in many ways um, the cyberpunks, which were my favorite science fiction authors and really got me interested in science fiction. I think there's been post-cyberpunk and there's been all kinds of things after that. But I think we're actually, this cyberpunks actually miss the real threat of where things are in society in that they kind of saw technology and nation states and, and um big corporations and such being kind of this predatory big thing, you know, that, um, and in many ways it's a lot more subtle and nuanced than that. It wasn't the fact that I have this, you know, neural lace in my head or this, this thing that interfaces automatically with the web. It's the fact that that neural lace is made by a group with their own particular agenda that may or may not feed you kinds of things that you want or don't want, right? So I can think of something like I've often said I'd love if I had a watch with a tiny little hair pinprick on it that you can't feel that kind of is constantly taking my my blood and triglycerides and all this. I want, I want to see a graph of my, you know, stuff over time. I want to learn this once a year and then go, gosh, now i got to go on a diet again to fix my blood pressure, right? I, um, I won't know. Got a little pause there, so uh, yeah, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to have a once a year go to the doctor and figure out that. Uh, well, now it's time to go on the diet again to fix my blood pressure or, or take a drug to bring it down. I want to. I want to know over time. Hey, here's the trends or whatever. So that kind of thing is tremendous, and I think sci-fi writers in the past have said oh, something like this could exist. But what they missed is sort of the company that might incentivize you or advertise at you or, or push you in a direction for, or just have bogus health things that aren't that useful, like you know body mass index or whatever is de rigor at the time. Or they assume that you know hot, low fat, for instance, was a good diet when it turned out to be kind of a disaster. And then they change that to, this is a thing you have to watch and watch out for. And, and all of a sudden, you're kind of constantly chasing this like, whoa you know and you're getting incentives for something that's actually not healthy or or even worse i could imagine it's like whoa your blood sugar is low it's time to have you know a sugary soft drink right a pepsi right um that kind of thing you know to me would be a disaster in terms of uh, uh, mankind it would be the kind of thing that just i like to say it pushes past the blood brain barrier of your ability to make decisions right and uh, because it's so highly calibrated and tuned, and it seems realistic, I think that is that kind of invasiveness to me is is um, something where I know I'm probably getting a little bit older. Uh, whereas, like when I was younger, I could I felt like I could always like I'd look at every kind of technology as like even if it had a downside as being you know an unmitigated positive in some ways. And I I do try to be a centrist on these things and look at both the dark and the light of any technology. Um, everything is both good and bad. It exists on a spectrum. Uh, it may lean one way or another, and I think each individual thing has to be evaluated. But there are definitely types of things now where um, technology feels more invasive in some ways uh, than it ever has in, in, and in different ways than the cyberpunks have. And there's a yeah. part of me that, that spends less time um, with 
social media. Like I use an app called Freedom at times, especially when I'm writing. It basically blocks my ability to go to any social media for a period of time so I can concentrate actually mm-hmm. um, and not be pushed and pulled. I don't want push notifications. I don't want, I mute everything. I unfollow every feed. I'm not interested in like so-and-so said this outrageous thing so I can be suddenly manipulated emotionally and upset and have to go towards it. Mm-hmm. So I think um, tomorrow's kids are really going to have a totally different world that they have to deal with. Um, and one where they're going to have to effectively make choices as an individual to screen out some of these things and then use them only when there's a real benefit to them. And they're going to have to be really sharp at understanding when the, the negatives outweigh the positives in terms of any benefit they receive uh, from a piece of technology in the future. Amazing. I really appreciate talking to you. I think we can end it there. This has cool. been a brilliant conversation. I thank you so much, Dan. You've opened my eyes as you do many times when we speak. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. And for my last question, I, I'm just worried that I don't see yours recording anymore. So I'm not sure if your you stopped because I see that I can here. I still it says, see it. You can um, still see that you're recording? Yeah, because I see here that it says your local backup is full, so oh. maybe it still is doing something like uh, cool. Local backup. The... Oh, I see local backup. Yeah, um, I still see things happening. You still see like the the little on your side because I stopped seeing. The... Yeah, I still see. It says recording in progress still on mine. Okay, cool. Um, and... Do you see the the little like you see how on mine it has a a line and then there's the sound wave. Yeah, I see. I still see sound waves. I see both for myself uh, okay, and the good. podcast host as a separate line. I see recording in progress on both. All right, cool. Then we're still good. Then I was just, I wanted to make sure that we're still catching this. So my last question for you before we finish this off is, Dan Jeffries, are you a robot? <laughs> I like to think of a, cy- a cyborg. Uh, from the future <laughs> like to think I'm augmented with uh, technological uh, extensions to my intelligence but I'm very much unfortunately a uh, a uh, meat space creation uh, subject to uh, the decay uh, of, uh, of organic matter I think they said in Fight Club you're the same uh, uh, decaying organic matter as everything else so unfortunately I think that I am not a robot <laughs> Not yet, at least, huh? Not yet. Perfect, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back at a later date. Actually, no. I'm used to saying that as like signing off. Oh, we'll see you next week, but (laughs) not for this. This is a totally different beast. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We appreciate it. And we will see you later. Have a great day. Bye.